Hello, and welcome to On The Grid, Z-Prime's podcast about important issues regarding energy, cities, and much more. I'm your host, Ricky Murray, and we're back with a jam-packed new season full of innovative ideas and the latest happenings in the energy and city space. Get ready, y'all. This season, we're charging up. When I started to plan this season of On The Grid, I knew I wanted to focus on telling stories that not only make an impact today, but stories that will help launch our future forward. Stories that promise a better and cleaner tomorrow. Stories that we all need to hear. Kicking off our season, I'm not only joined by Z Prime CEO and Frolic co-founder Jason Rodriguez, but I'm joined by the entire Z Prime research and content team. Together, I'm taking us on a journey beginning with a 2023 outlook of our clean energy future and how mobility, data, cities, and decarbonization all fit together like a perfect piece of the energy puzzle. So strap in y'all, it's time to get on the grid. For my first guest on my research roundup, if you will, is CEO of Z Prime and co-founder of Frolic, Jason Rodriguez. Jason, welcome back to On The Grid. You're very familiar with the show. How are you this morning? Good morning, Ricky. I'm doing fantastic. It's excellent to be back in here. Happy 2023. Happy 2023 indeed. So we're about a month in. Uh, This is where actually more than a month in. We're almost two months in. February is rapidly coming to an end. And I feel like so many things have already happened in our energy space and the energy ecosystem, if you will. What's catching your eye so early on in 2023 so far? Fresh off the ice storm that you're familiar with here in Texas. (laughs) Yes, Uh, yes, the ice hurricane. That's front and center is uh, ice and and just the, the fragile nature of our grid. And it's, it's becoming increasingly disruptive and it's becoming increasingly impacting more and more people so just just the concept of resiliency being being such a household experience not just in texas but everywhere wildfires hurricanes rain flooding earthquakes whatever so that that to me is 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 going to continue to drive one of the biggest stories storylines of 2023 you know i feel like we didn't have to worry about resiliency as often maybe as people had to like 30 years ago. So, um, you know, now as we're looking towards the future and more sustainable options, yeah, resiliency definitely is a new top of mind thing, I think, beyond our industry, but with customers, um, you know, who are in there every day. So it's a good thing for us to be on the lookout for. You know, as we continue to look out into the future, what tech do you think we should be watching closely this year? So you're going to see a, a continuation of 2022 into 2023 in terms of what are the tech trends. There's, in, in our opinion, there's no big breakthroughs that that are really going to change the game. Now, there's a lot of conversation about nuclear vision and, and things that might be 10, 20 years out. Um, but as far as what's there, it's energy storage, it's electric vehicles, it's EV charging. It's going to continue to be the analytics that are bringing intelligence into the grid, which which have been top of mind for the past two years. Electric vehicles, uh, the batteries, uh, probably long duration storage batteries is one that's catching a lot of attention lately. Uh, virtual power plants and distributed energy resource systems are going to continue to infiltrate and be. Uh, you're going to see stronger adoption among utilities. But I'd say virtual power plants and energy storage, specifically long duration storage, are those two things that stick out. So for long duration storage, you mentioned, do would you say that that's the new it thing that utilities should be focusing on in 2023? Or are there maybe another, a few other it items that should really be that focus as we're focusing on 2023 goals? Uh, absolutely. Long duration energy storage is going to be one of those key pillars for 2023. Going back to what I mentioned at the beginning, when you have more severe weather events, longer outages happening, affecting more customers across the, the U.S., utilities and, and then customers and large large building and manufacturers really need to keep their systems up and running. And, and some of the short-term solutions that are out there, you're probably quickly finding that, hey, we're going to have to be prepared for instances where we might be out for three to five days. And how do we create a resilient system? In this in this age where the grid around us is is literally kind of crumbling uh, in front of our eyes. Yeah, yeah, and you know I think one thing we always talk about Z Prime is you know the power of partnerships and 
the of harnessing that this isn't just a one person type of game. This is a this is a collective group that needs to, you know, come together and really fight for that clean energy future. So with that in mind, we have ETS. It's our 10 year anniversary of ETS coming up. Is there anything that has surprised you over the past 10 years? Maybe something that you talked about at the first ETS that you weren't even thinking about that has now 10 years later, maybe is now a key part of the conversation. Give us a little 10 year yeah. rewind. <laughs> Wow, yeah, yeah. I wish I could do that all in in a, in a few few minutes. But probably the biggest one is just this this focus on on equity and people and and how important the the people doing the work is to the transition. That was not as big in terms of at ETS and probably majority of major conferences. It was about the technology. It was about what the uh, the challenges from a policy or regulatory standpoint. But now you're really seeing equity, the social and social justice. Uh, climate change, like these conversations are now front and center and the pillars that are driving ETS conversations and and worrying the, you know, from the frolic side, what we're seeing is just this, this realization of the need to really revolutionize workforce development because you cannot repair or build any good of the future if you do not have a, a willing workforce who's inspired, who's engaged, and, and you just have, by sheer numbers, have enough workers to do the work and that's what we're focusing on frolic, but it's also an industry problem that we really haven't figured out how to solve is how do you get more uh, solar installers, more folks trained to install electric vehicles? How do you handle batteries? How, all these things that come into place that we're just going to have to address and without filling that gap, we are not going to be able to meet our energy transition goals. You know, yeah, the, the 100%. There's Our outages aren't going anywhere. We're going to continue to develop new technologies to have a more renewable future where we're going to need people in that equation to really solve the problem. So I guess my last question for you before we wrap up is, I don't think we've ever really asked you this question. What does the word energy mean to you? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a great one. It means different things at different times to me, but in energy to me just just means the foundational step or component or driver to to our modern society and and that could mean it's it's the heartbeat it's what kind of makes everything go but it also it's also the thing that connects us as well so so there's no true definition i think that's something that sticks out to me other than it's just this foundational technology and source that we can all build upon that has really shaped our modern society for the past 100 plus years and it's going to continue to do that so uh, it's a symbol of, of the future uh, in a lot of ways nice nice well thank you so much for joining us it's always great talking to you i have the whole research crew waiting for me i have them all ready to answer so many of my questions today so thanks for starting the journey with us we're going to be talking with aaron next so until next time thanks for joining us on the grid thank you ricky you guys have a great day Jason touched a lot on workforce development and important pieces of the energy ecosystem to be on the lookout for. But one thing that stood out to me the most was the mobility piece. Taking us down the road of e-mobility, I'm joined by Aaron Otan, Senior Director of Research Programs here at Z-Prime. Aaron answers all of my questions from e-scooters to e-bikes, and even addresses the incorporation of AR into EVs. Aaron Otan, you're back. Hello. Hello, Ricky. It's great to be back. Always love jumping on the podcast with you. Well, I always love having you, uh, whether a co-host or a guest. So, you know, I'm glad you're back. I just chatted with Jason and Jason presented a lot of info for me. He gave me a lot of energy terms, but he really cast, you know, a light on what the 2023, you know, energy ecosystem looks like. And one of the things he touched on was mobility. So naturally, I always have a lot of questions about mobility because I drive a car. I like ride a bike sometimes. And electric vehicles are on the top of mind for us here. You know, I'm going to talk to Heba a little bit later about some EV data that we're doing. So mobility, like I said, I have lots of questions. My first one being... What's your favorite mode of e-mobility? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for coming to me to talk about the topic of mobility. It's one of my favorites when it comes to different aspects of the energy industry. So I'm excited 
to get into it with you today. My favorite mode of e-mobility, um, I would have to say e-bikes. So I actually mm. got, <laughs> I got an e-bike for my husband for his birthday in 2020. And then shortly after that, realized that I needed one too. Well, They're naturally. just really fun. It's fun to get on a bike and easily get up to close to 20 miles an hour while wearing a helmet, of course. Thank you. I was uh, going to ask. I was going to ask. I was going to be like, are you wearing a helmet? Tell me you are. Be safe. So they're fun. They can definitely still be a workout if that's something that people are concerned about when switching from a regular bike to an electric bike. But you and I both know people who have started biking to work or to run errands instead of driving because e-bikes make it easy, make it fun. So yeah, I, I think everyone should should get on an e-bike. When I, so I live in downtown Austin and when I first moved into downtown Austin, I experienced e-bikes for the first time and now I'm just obsessed and um, I'm like, oh, I need an e-bike, but I don't exactly. Think I that's the thing. Once you, once you get on one, one time, that's what you need to really convince you. I think. Shout out Austin B-Cycle. I'm a B-Cycle <laughs> member of four, or I think it's like Capital Metro biking now it's changed so maybe shout out capital metro anyways second question for you scariest mode of e-mobility scariest um i'm gonna say e-scooters and again it's just a personal opinion i have ridden scooters i've never myself had an accident on one but they just i never feel quite safe on them i always feel a little bit unstable I'm worried cars aren't going to see me or that I'm going to ride over a pebble and go flying. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just not really that comfortable on the scooters. But what about you? You're downtown. Do you take the scooters a lot? Um, I won't even ride a regular scooter. So So the question just just doesn't work for me. (laughs) But I do see people on them all the time. When I take my dogs on walks around downtown, I'll see like scooters thrown on like the trail randomly. That's a whole problem within itself. I was reading a little bit about them before this recording because I was curious. So when they first came out, it was, you know, just such a huge topic of discussion. Now you don't really hear people talking about them all that much, but I did find that ridership has increased quite a bit from between 2020 and 2022. So people are still riding them. More people are still riding them. More cities are adopting them. So, you know, nothing, nothing against the scooters. I just don't find them. I find them yeah. the scariest to answer your questions. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the clean energy revolution, Aaron. So we're we're ready. More scooters, more bikes, more EVs, but less cars. Talk to me a little bit more about what's on the rise in 2023 when it comes to e-mobility. And maybe are there any cool projects we need to be on the lookout for? It's catching your eye these days. So I think one thing that's maybe somewhat obvious is just the increasing adoption and rate of adoption of electric vehicles. I feel like every car commercial that I see now is for an EV and not for a traditional ICE vehicle. Um, You know, last year it was a big deal that there were so many Super Bowl commercials that featured EVs. And then just throughout the year, I don't know if I've even seen a commercial for a car that's not an EV. So increasing adoption, something that's A trend that I think um, is not super flashy, but is important is just the continuing improvement of the charging experience, you know, whether that's having more amenities um, around existing chargers, um, having more chargers available, making sure that the chargers are actually functioning. Um, But something I've been reading a lot about is smart charging. So that's where Data is collected when you start charging, when you hook your car up to a charger, data is collected and sent to a controller via the cloud to optimize charging times and speeds. And that can save the EV owner, the charging operator, the charger operator, and the utility money. And it also helps to ensure reliability by not overloading the grid. So There's a lot of people working on these new technologies, um, different platforms for smart charging that will be coming out. So I think that's something to 
to look out for some new options for charging too, I think. So Accenture is looking at street lamp charging in New York City, where not many people live in houses with garages where they can just charge a car at home. So just having more options of places to charge is another way to improve that charging experience. We're building infrastructure all over. We Mm -hmm. need to. (laughs) We need to if we're going to both increase the adoption and then also serve the people who are adopting, you know, who are switching over to EVs. It's happening pretty quickly. So we need to be able to make sure all those people can charge. Something that's a little bit on the flashier side to answer your question is... Uh, So urban air mobility, which is something that we've kind of been watching out for for a while at Z Prime now. Yeah, yeah. But specifically, there's a company called Lilium, and they're working on electric air taxis. Um, They've already partnered with several cities and countries. In the U.S., they're building their first vertiport in Orlando. They're conducting test flights in Spain, and it'll you know, likely be another couple of years before they're actually operational, but just something interesting to keep an eye on. Um, what's a vertiport stop? <laughs> I uh, need so to know. Vertiport <laughs> is where <laughs> where these um where these air taxis will take off and land from. So that's where that's where they come and go from. Okay. Okay. So like a little like a little tiny helipads of sorts. Okay. Right, right. Cute. Love that. Nice. Okay. So there's a lot of things to be on on the lookout for. And, you know, I was having a conversation with one of my friends earlier in the week, and we talked about how, you know, we could probably power every single EV if every person, you know, in the US had an EV, we could power them. However, it would be very difficult for us because we wouldn't have a lot of ways to power them or ability to do it and to keep it going and make it, you know, sustainable for everyone who has an EV. So it's exciting to see, you know, the promise of EV infrastructure on the rise. Mm-hmm. One thing you mentioned, though, is commercials. And I've never thought of that, actually. I didn't, I haven't realized myself that I haven't seen commercials for any other cars besides EVs, which leads me to my very important next question. Have have you seen the commercial or the test video, the new Audi, Audi concept for their EV? It incorporates AR. Have you seen it? If you have, do you have thoughts? (laughs) So I have seen it. Uh, My immediate thoughts are I wish I was in that target demographic <laughs> that they're coming <laughs> after. Uh, you know, the people who wake up and look out at their infinity pool in their mansion and then mm-hmm. go skiing and mountain biking all in the same day. Right, right, um, right. <laughs> Adventurers. <laughs> right. I mean, the car itself, it, it's a pretty compelling commercial. I think it's got... Uh, It just looks really cool, honestly, the different things, all the different things that the car can do, the way it can kind of track you and um, just make (laughs) make your life easier on the road. I agree. The technology that it incorporates. It comes with cool AR glasses. You don't want cool (laughs) AR glasses. Glasses. You can kind of can't. Didn't it show them recording their whole day or something? And then they they could go back and watch their ski run. That was pretty cool. Or their mountain biking run. I think it detected when there were bikes in the car. So the little racks. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Up. They weren't always there. So that was kind of a cool design. E-bikes. I I yes, might add. they're e-bikes. <laughs> they're, they're electric mountain bikes. So, yeah, it will be interesting to see if this car, the way that it's kind of presented as the concept, if it actually makes it to the market. Yeah, it's exciting. That's something for us to probably be on the lookout too, for as well. My last question for you probably is one of my favorite questions to ask anyone when they come on the podcast. So I'm glad I get to ask it to you. It's time to debunk Mythbusters (laughs) Energy Edition. Tell us some misconceptions about EVs that we have to get out of people's brains. Okay, so this is one that I've definitely heard it in the past, but I feel like I've heard it come up more recently too, just more often recently. So I've been hearing people question whether EVs are actually better for the environment than traditional ICE vehicles. 
especially since cars have gotten so efficient with their, you know, with emission standards. So I did some reading on the subject and it's very complicated, but overall there is no question that EVs are better for both the environment and human health than traditional fossil fossil fuel powered vehicles. So I think it's too too complicated to go into too much detail here, but just a few points. Mining for the minerals that are necessary for electric vehicles and their batteries, especially. It's very labor intensive. It has adverse environmental impacts. And of course, it's going to be impacting vulnerable populations, which seems to always happen. So that's something to be sensitive to when we're talking about the clean energy transition and environmental justice. Kind of looking at the bigger picture, though, I'm going to quote Dave Roberts, who's a journalist and has an excellent podcast called Volts that I recommend everyone listen to, especially the episode on this subject. He's got a whole episode specifically devoted to this. So it's really great. Um, He says the scale of resource extraction in a decarbonized world will be vastly smaller than what's required to sustain a fossil fueled society. In a net zero economy, there will be on net less digging, less transporting, less burning, less polluting. Um, So his podcast kind of goes into reasons and stats on that. But I just thought that I'd kind of point that out as as a misconception. So, of course, electrifying transportation is going to be a huge part of that net zero economy. And um, so, yeah, that's that's my thought on recent misconception I've heard about. It's funny the way you frame it, because you're right, when EVs first started to really get gain popularity, that was something people talked a lot about is, wait, are these actually better for the environment? And it is funny now, I'd say almost like close to 10 years later, it's now coming back again. It's a, it's a new question we have. So as we look into 2023, we're going to myth bust it all. Yeah. And then... You know, this is all to say I'm definitely pro electric vehicle, excited about where the industry is going. But I would have to say I am actually a bigger proponent of making our streets more pedestrian friendly and safer, you know, creating better infrastructure for things like bikes that we talked about. And, you know, I just hope that eventually we'll start moving in that direction of actually cutting down on the number of cars we saw we see on the street and increasing public transit and pedestrian options. Does this mean you are not going to be a 15 minute city protester? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you saw them, but um, indeed, I did. I, I did. I, I don't believe that 15 minute cities are just a way for the government to control us. So no, no, I I won't be protesting (laughs) the 15 minute city concept. (laughs) Nice. nice. Well, you know, that, that now I just have a bunch of city questions now that, now that we've talked about cars and streets and, you know, making them more friendly for pedestrians. So I think I'm going to go bother Joyce, (laughs) our resident cities expert. So thank you so much for joining me today, Aaron. It's always a pleasure chatting with you as a co-host and even as a guest. As always, thanks for joining us on the grid. Until next time. Thanks, Ricky. Tell the rest of the team I said hello. Will do. Bye. 15-minute cities might be a hot topic in parts of the world right now, but along with e-mobility, other technologies and investments are needed as we begin to build our cities of the future. This, my friends, has led me to a conversation with Joyce Dooley, Z Prime Senior Research Analyst. Joyce shares with me how cities are investing in people in more ways than we may know. So come on, y'all. Let's jump into some cities. Joyce, welcome back to On The Grid. You're not co-hosting right now. I'm so glad because Jason and Aaron have kind of really just like let loose all the wires in my brain that I have so many questions about, well, so many more questions really about the future of energy in 2023 about mobility. But the main thought I keep coming back to is people and our cities. So essentially, you know, people are the blood of our cities, the oxygen, if you will. Cities can't really exist. They can't thrive if people are not included in that process. If we're not investing in people, if we're not investing in the health of our cities, you know, that's a risk for these people. So 
as we're kind of talking about things we're expecting in 2023, cities need to be investing in people. Please help me understand what cities are doing right now that are investing in people. Are they even investing in people? Actually, maybe they're not. Tell me things. Help me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on as a guest so I can share some of this information with you and our audience. Cities definitely are investing in people because you're right. You know, without people, cities don't exist. And the citizen-centric view of a city is so crucial because what a lot of cities are trying to accomplish has to do with dealing with equity and access to services and mobility and making sure that people's quality of life is improved. And you can't do that unless you effectively engage with your residents. And so that's happening in a lot of different ways. Um, You know, one of the ways in particular has to do with like the built environment as they're talking about urban infrastructure and what is the health of a city? Like, what does your green space look like in your community? What does your sustainability initiatives say that are going to lead to long-term health improvements as you clean your air and your water in your community and move to decarbonization goals. And we'll get to some of that in a little bit, but there's roadmaps that cities are putting together that really make citizens the focal point of what is happening because the technology components have been around for a while and that those pieces can get figured out. But what is most important to your residents and your citizens is really where cities are at right now. So how do they align the needs of the city to innovate in tandem with the needs of the community at hand. And so there's a lot of really great work that's happening across so many cities, not just here in the US, but around the world, that are really trying to solve those problems. Um, I think it's a little bit of a shift from where, you know, I think everything was all about connecting all the things and using technology. We've really learned through some of these failed pilots and projects that happen that with balancing the business case with the citizen case is really important. Um, because you need that public buy-in to continue to support these efforts. And so the city of San Antonio, for instance, has done a lot to actively engage with their community. I think over 20-something events that they held for educational purposes and inclusion, conversations and surveys, and then they have put together their roadmap that they're releasing here later in the spring that really has been, you know, shaped by the citizens of San Antonio. And they're not the only ones. There's yeah, tell me, like, tell me some other ones. Like, what are some of those great cities that, because yeah, I knew I you mean, were going to say San Antonio. I knew it, San Antonio native. Duh, <laughs> gotta talk about San Antonio. Um, no, there's tons of other cities. I mean, Philadelphia has been doing some really fantastic work. Um, I would definitely say Fort Collins, Colorado has done some phenomenal things. Um, even, you know, Frisco, Texas is working on some really great innovation as well. Um, and really, um, for what Frisco is doing right is the pilot projects that it's putting out there. There's a lot of education and communication with what residents can expect. So for instance, they did like a um, robot delivery pilot and the residents were like told, you know, what to expect in terms of, you know, having robots on the sidewalks and things like that. So they weren't surprised by what was happening. (laughs) Um, You know, those kinds of efforts, right? That kind of communication, but there's so much more, um, you know, and, and that's just the tip of the iceberg really, because we have hundreds and thousands of cities in America and small to large cities are working on these things. You know, we we hear often about the big projects, the big shiny objects that are going on, but some of the, some of the best solutions out there or smart city applications or case studies happen in really small towns and they are able to move more quickly sometimes to get those things up and off the ground. But that citizen engagement piece is really like the people centric view is, is really coming into full play. And I think that vendors are starting to work with cities more closely to really figure out that component to have a holistic vision and solution for smart cities. You know, One thing you just said, you talked about how some small cities are doing some really good things and quickly. And I think that kind of plays hand in hand, essentially, with what like City of Frisco is probably doing and what City of San Antonio has done, where those smaller cities probably have such a larger sense of community because they're smaller, they're closer knit. They probably, you know, cities probably have a much closer pulse to the people at that point. And so 
it's cool to see that like large cities can still do the same thing as small cities and that there can be lessons learned from each other. So I love to hear that. Absolutely. And I have to give a lot of credit to people who are working on regional efforts, right? Like Jen Sanders, one of our favorites, right? She has a yeah, regional yeah. initiative in several states here in the South, Southwest, um, and how they're collaborating together to have this you know, unique vision of what smart cities can be and like what best practices are. Um, because there's so much customization that comes down at the city level when you are talking about smart city projects, because every community is slightly different. And then, you know, your communities within communities is slightly different from other people's. And so being able to create that think tank, thought sharing, you know, collaborative environment is so crucial, especially if we're really trying to move beyond just a single city to having like a smart state concept or a smart region concept, you know, yeah. we have to have that part. Yeah. Yeah. I, one, one that I think we've featured before really is one that does feature Jen Sanders and the collaboration she's doing with, you know, neighboring states even, and that smart city regional connector hub is just such a fascinating concept. If we could have regional hubs across the U.S. Imagine what we could then do after that and connecting the regional hubs and uh, so many things. Okay. I'm losing. Well, yes. I'm losing my interest. I'm losing my track. So let's shift gears a little bit. One thing we kind of talk about a lot at the Z prime side is utilities and their decarbonization efforts. Yeah. How are those decarbonization efforts coming into play when it comes to cities? Like are cities setting ambitious goals? Um, are they electrifying in more clean and equitable ways? Like how are cities playing into that utility decarbonization story? Oh, I mean, that's a really great question. I, I know that there are a few. I mean, I want to say that there are several, if not many cities that have this in mind because climate action is something that is sort of incorporated into a lot of offices of sustainability, right? Or whatever equivalent department there is within a city. Um, looking at public health long-term, you know, you can't remove the climate element from those conversations, especially as we're dealing with more inclement weather, hotter summers, you know, um, it's- Texas just, just got iced over, Joyce. You just got iced over. I know. And in February, people are like, oh, but that's it's February. No, Texas doesn't. South Texas doesn't get iced over, guys. Very this often. was an like, this was an ice hurricane is what I've been <laughs> is what I've been hearing. So that's yeah, the term. It was, it was really bad, especially for a lot of people in the northeastern like hill country uh, areas, for sure. Um, but yeah, no. So energy justice is a term that is really being used to not just address like what is happening from a climate decarbonization perspective, but also like how do we address, you know, communities that are often disadvantaged or that bear the burden of dealing with some of these concepts like already. So disadvantaged communities are often more polluted. They are often the ones who are left behind when new initiatives come out. So energy justice is really like, how do we make sure that we're addressing these communities in the decarbonization electrification conversation? Right. How do we make yeah. sure that they are maybe some of the first people to have accessibility to these programs and, you know, job trainings and things like that. So that way you can build the community up and with the transition and transformation that's happening. Um, there's several projects happening at the federal level, too. And I'm going to make a plug because um, if you it's city of the future and you were on one or you saw one of my panels. Uh, Zach Valdez of the Department of Energy will be joining us for a smart or for a city chats with Joyce episode coming up here in the next few weeks where we're going to be talking about what some of the Department of Energy's federal programs are to address these issues specifically. Oh, that's incredible. City chats plug away. Love that. We're going to talk about that too later. It's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Joyce, I literally could talk to you all day, just first and foremost. You've really answered some of my most pressing city questions, but honestly, I have one final question that's probably the most important question to me when it comes to mm. cities. If you, San Antonio is out of the question in this equation, <laughs> but if you could live in any smart, what you deem a smart city today, um, which one would it be and why? Oh, that's such a tough question because San Antonio will always have my heart, Ricky. Always, always. And San Antonio is so cool. Honestly, 
the amount of times I talk about San Antonio as being the leaders in the smart city, like revolution is insane. Like people do honestly do need to check out San Antonio and their ability to just harness community power to. Yes, absolutely. Well, that and the team is just so so fabulously wonderful individuals. Like it's so nice to just know them as people as well. Um, But if you are asking me if anywhere in the big wide world where I would go to live in a smart city, um, it would have to be Helsinki, Finland, because one, I have always wanted to live abroad in that area um, of the world and explore, you know, what that looks like. But um, they have some really cool initiatives. You know, they are definitely building a citizen-centric city, right? So lots of walkability, lots of bike paths, lots of accessibility to services and shops and things like that to make it very livable and accessible and mobile. They're also doing a lot of carbon neutral um, initiatives as well. So really looking at clean energy technologies, you know, alternative fuels, how do we get people out walking more? Like there's, there's just so many elements to that. And then because I have a uh, an IOT brain um, in terms of technologies and things like that. They are actually doing a lot of industrial innovation as well. So I think that if I was in Helsinki, not only would I get to enjoy the beautiful city and all of the benefits of their climate initiatives and so on and so on, but also I could use my brain for good and really help them with their industrial innovations. Yes, because honestly, the way for us to move forward in the future is together. Like right. at the end of the day. And so you offer, you offer the brain, go to Helsinki. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if anyone's going to like send me over there, that would be fantastic. <laughs> right. Right. For all of the Helsinki listeners and Joyce is coming. <laughs> well, Joyce, thanks for joining me again today. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And until next time, I believe we're going to be hosting quite a few podcasts together this season. Everyone can hear you again soon. Any last messages for our listeners before you go? Yes, actually, there are two things that I forgot to mention. So I'm going to do that right now. If you're looking for a city that is sort of leading the way with energy justice, I would definitely check out the city of Orlando's Office of Sustainability. Um, They're doing some really cool projects. There's a City Chats with Joyce episode that we did on that as well. And then there was a really cool project that LA's Department of Transportation did around equity and micromobility having to do with their e-scooters. There's also a City Chats episode on that. But more than anything, I think it is really interesting how cities are leveraging digital infrastructure for equity and mobility purposes across the board. So love all the things that are happening with that. Thank you for the opportunity to share about one of my deepest passions. And I love chatting with you. Of course, we're going to build future cities together. It's going to be lovely. Love it. (laughs) Until next time, Joyce, thank you. Thank you. We hear in the news that countries around the world are making commitments to decarbonize. Joyce helped me understand what that looks like on a city level. So for my next conversation, I'm turning to Dylan Lockwood, Z Prime Senior Content Editor. Dylan dives into the role that utilities play when helping achieve these goals within a city and what it looks like from their perspective. Dylan, thanks for joining me on the grid today. I just chatted with Joyce and we discussed a lot of things around city life and city people, city decarbonization efforts, city mobility efforts, really the whole city ecosystem. And one thing in particular we touched on is decarbonization and what cities are doing for decarbonization. So that's really led me to you. So thanks for joining me again today. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great, Ricky. Uh, It's great to be back on the show. Thanks for having me. Of course. It's always a pleasure. Now, I have lots of questions. Well, maybe not a lot of questions. (laughs) Well, we'll see. So let's talk about decarbonization. Anytime I have decarbonization questions at work, I usually come to you. So I know I'm in the right place. And like I just discussed, Joyce and I, you know, we talked about decarbonization in cities, but I want to talk to you more specifically about the state of utilities decarbonizing in 2023. Can you talk to me a little bit about what it looks like in 2023? Are you enough utilities doing it? Are the 
some utilities maybe not doing enough. I have so many. I'm going to stop with the question. You just talk. Go. So at the top level, Ricky, I'll just start simply by saying that no one's doing enough because global temperatures are continuing to rise. All of the horrible things that we're worried about that are going to come from that are still on the horizon. You know, everyone is noticing their local weather is changing. So uh, in that sense, you know, no one, no one's doing it quite right. No one's quite, uh, no one globally has fully taken the charge and started the movement that's going to, uh, to ultimately save us. However, there is some progress. Emissions uh, in the U.S. were, are, you know, historically lower than they have been, though there has been an uptick because there was a big drop during pandemic and with uh, with economic okay. forces uh, turning back on over the last few years, emissions have uh, increased somewhat. With utilities, yeah. there is a lot going forward uh, with decarbonization. Something like six, something like sixty percent of utilities. That, that, that's a that's a rough estimate I got from a graphic, but there's a good amount of utilities that have decarbonization goals either in the in the near f- future or through 2050. Is that going? to be enough to avert everything that we, we fear? No, but it's a good start. And there's, it allows for uh, room for acceleration. There are things to be excited about in terms of the acceler- in terms of that acceleration. Give me, give me some exciting things. Yeah. What are, what are some of the new exciting decarb tech, if you will, or decarb techniques? Well, the technique, the, the, the biggest technique is making things cheaper, right? Oh, um, yeah. Getting affordability. Exactly, making uh, making solar uh, affordable, more affordable for uh, residential purposes, or for putting into big farms by utilities, uh, storage for big uh, for big commercial and industrial customers uh, on site generation and storage for them is becoming more affordable, which will um, you know can make things a little hairy for utilities logistically in terms of managing these distributed energy resources, but in terms of like lower you know lowering the overall carbon output of the energy sector it's those are some positive steps forward would you say utilities are moving fast enough to do that to when it comes to decarbonization no um i i I think that i while i understand the business uh right the business issues and uh legislative constraints that can that make utilities move really really slowly i don't think 2050 is a uh close enough is a close enough goal uh so i think that you know utilities that are look that are looking 30 40 years down the road and saying ah that's when we can like that's when we can have a a carbon neutral utility i think that's i think that's way too far out considering uh the rates of warming that we're going through you know and that kind of begs my next question of is this solely like a utilities job or is this is this more of a city involvement? Joyce and I kind of talked a little bit about how cities can maybe set some goals, but it's maybe not just like a one person approach or a one organization approach, right? Like, yeah, I mean, in a, in a sense, it's everybody's responsibility um, because we all you know live on this planet. And while there are ways, but I do understand also that, you know, it's not an individual's problem because- right. You know, while there are lots of things a person can do to reduce their uh, to reduce their carbon footprint, the biggest contributors to, to emission levels worldwide are, you know, our governments, industries uh, like agriculture, and just emissions from transportation and things like that. So just these like large systemic things. So the question is: is can leadership from global governments, local governments, cities, and utilities, and then all of the companies that uh, make up those ecosystems, can they come together and align on goals and funding to achieve those goals to to actually get to where we need to get to? And so far, that kind of hasn't happened. And like when I say it's everyone's problem, not it's not just because we live on the planet, but because we also as individuals and as communities have say in the types of leaders that we can appoint to these posi- to these positions, not necessarily in the private sector, but when it comes to like public utilities and um, local governance, like those are things that we do have have say in. And so, one thing that might help move things forward is if we have you know a a local populace, or if we have a populace that um, is willing to push leaders 
on, on these subjects because sometimes they do have to get pushed into it. Essentially relating back to power of the people, um, yes. galvanizing together, having that same collective common goal. So so for utilities, when, we, when we're talking about like opportunities, what do you think like the biggest opportunities lie for utilities who aren't maybe on the most aggressive road to decarbonization? Well, I would say some of the some of the biggest opportunities are in public education, by which I mean, you can if you uh, have a hard time with like public buy in to uh, getting more aggressive with decarbonization, you should probably have some type of plan to uh, that incorporates talking with the public about how they can benefit from it and bring them along, you know, and bring them along with you. Talk about, you know, create programs that can incentivize people to do some type of home generation or storage program, get, you know, obviously can get them involved with like demand response rates and stuff like that. We can also, you know, yeah, have have EV programs. Another opportunity that I don't see enough utilities taking is discussion with other utilities. We do these reports in partnership with uh, the National Public Utilities Council. Yeah. Seeing how decarbonization efforts are going. And when, you know, we often run into plenty of utilities that don't really know what other what other utilities are doing, like what, how other utilities can circumvent problems that they've encountered, things like that. They need a sister utility program. When I worked in, maybe it's not called that, but when I worked in education, we, um, I used to have a sister school that was like in another district somewhere where we'd have like these monthly meetups of partner sharing of here's what works at my campus, what's working over here at yours. It sounds like they need like sister utilities. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about on the positive side. So what are some utilities right now who are decarbonizing, who it's maybe already making a difference or actively making a difference? Maybe they have some additional customer buy-in, but what utilities are essentially doing this right? Well, I guess in terms of in terms of doing it right, the, the easiest big utility to turn to is SMUD. Uh, the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, um, which has a super aggressive 2030, not just uh, net zero, but zero carbon plan, um, which is the most aggressive in the nation. And yeah. they're and like, we'll know relatively soon whether or not they're going to hit it, but they've been, a lot of what they've been doing to get there uh, is really, they've like quadrupled their uh, use of renewable energy since making this plan um, they're retiring they're retiring their natural gas plants replacing them with renewables they're getting more involved with the hydroelectric projects all kinds of alternative fuel sources for for generators and things like that and then they're working at the customer level which I think is uh, a big part of getting the last mile as it were is uh, getting customers involved by offering them programs incentives and education on why going zero carbon in their homes and uh, in their transportation and in the rest of their lives benefits them. Customers, businesses, all of it. You, you need to bring all of them along because, yeah, because the utility, like, like we established, can't do, can't get 100% of the way there by themselves. There needs to be, you know, buy-in from the customers. There needs to be adequate funding and there needs to be the regulatory freedom to do that. So I think all of those uh, pieces are together there at, at SMUD. Staying on the West Coast, because that's where I'm from, um, Ga- uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, which has had all kinds of problems I recognize. They do have a net zero by 2040 goal, uh, which is like right at the tail end of like, it's sort of acceptable, yeah. but they're they're also doing that through like workforce education, customer, pro- customer programs, pilots for communities that are uh, historically disadvantaged to try and um, to try and get them up to speed uh, technologically and that sort of thing. Um, Portland Gas and Electric doing something similar. There are there are a lot there are a lot of examples of good overall strategies, but we're going to have to see in the next next few years how where the execution lands on all these. Yeah, definitely. The, it seems like the West, the, the West is maybe where we should all be looking, maybe pointing our eyes to when it comes to maybe a good framework for decarbonizing best practices or efforts so yeah. and and to cover my butt a little bit i will say that most of my examples are from the west coast because that's the uh because i'm I live on the west coast and so yes, that's yes, what yes. i see a lot in the media yes of course of course i'm gonna i'm gonna find an east coast point of view and then we're gonna have you debate we also have a lot of we have a lot of hydro out here so that's a that's an easy debate for the west side 
because uh, it's not a universal solution, unfortunately. Yeah, definitely. You know, touching back on one thing you said, you know, you you started leading with one of the best examples to turn to is SMUD. And a common theme, you know, that I'm really finding as we're talking about decarbonization is that whole community buy-in aspect and that education portion of people need to maybe first know what decarbonization means. You and I are energy dudes, right? Like we know what it means, but the average person in, you know, their community might not. So all leading back to say that prior to this too, SMUD did a lot of really great work with just branding and community outreach to, I think, help secure a faster transition to decarbonizing. So shout out to that. You're you're very right, because the thing is, is that there's enough technology and money for us to have a carbon neutral. And if I'm being entirely honest, maybe even zero carbon grid in the United States, maybe even globally. But you have to get everyone on the same page. You have to make sure that like your goals are aligned and that you have a strategy that doesn't leave anyone behind. It's tough because that requires a lot of community organizing at a time when um, you know communities are are struggling, it requires a lot of political will. At a time when our politics are really, really broken, mm-hmm, yeah. um, but it doesn't mean that any of it's impossible. But what it does mean is that there's just like a lot of there's a lot of organizing that needs to be to be done, and a lot of uh, discuss. There's a lot of discussion that needs to be had. It's not so much that we're just waiting for a silver tech bullet, as much as it's just uh, trying to find trying to work out the really, really, really difficult logistics of uh, of decarbonizing a grid that was never built with that thought in mind. Yeah. Galvanizing together. That's the silver bullet. Yeah. Uh, well, Dylan, I feel like I know way more about decarbonization than I did, you know, 20 minutes ago. Your ability to talk about it in such a succinct manner and to really relate it back to just our whole overall theme of you know, the, our energy ecosystem and how they all play together. You really paint a nice picture of that. So it's always a pleasure for having you on the grid with us. Any last messages for our listeners before you head out? Build trains. Oh, that's my thing. That's that, that's that's my thing. I love I, I love trains. I've been radicalized. You know, Aaron and I talked a bit about trains earlier in this. So um She'll be she'll be very excited to hear your trade. Yeah, today. shout out Aaron. She's a good egg. <laughs> well, once again, Dylan, thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Until next time. Thank you, Ricky. Bye. After having these four conversations, I began to get a bit introspective and started to reflect on how we as consumers have the ability to enact change ourselves. Hiba Bukhari, data analyst at Z-Prime, runs through key data points from EVs and other clean energy tech that are really helping shape our clean energy future. Hiba, thank you for joining me. I realize this is your first podcast edition with us. We featured you last season in an interview that you did with uh, Smud and DNV, but this is your first time as like a guest and a content expert. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. It is the first time for me uh, on a podcast, but um, I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm excited to have you because I just talked with Dylan and Dylan kind of, he didn't kind of, he truly did just open my eyes to this whole world of utilities who are decarbonizing and making these huge commitments to their customers and to their cities that customers really are interested in. And it kind of has now led me down this path to think, you know, utilities are just one side of the coin. We also need to consider the roles that consumers play when it comes to decarbonizing. So you've been tracking some key like trend data around consumer sentiments towards EVs uh, and other clean energy technologies. So talk to me a little bit more about that side of the coin. What type of data exactly are you tracking? Right. So I've been tracking, like you said, consumer data uh, in both sides. From, first, from the utility response, which is the service that we provide at Z Prime, 
and that focuses on um, EV, EV sales, EV interest, uh, their sentiments towards their utilities, I mean consumers, uh, sentiments towards utilities and trust in their utilities, uh, what they think about customer um, experiences in different industries. On another hand, I uh, do ad hoc reports every once in a while, depending on what's going on in the in the industry. Um, I'm working right now on a report on e-bikes and people like interests and how they're they're uh, adapting micro mobility and shared micro mobility in in cities and how they are using or how much they're interested in electric bikes. For that, there was a report on the uh, latest change in uh, rooftop solar incentives. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I think as you've heard, in California, it has been um, enacted recently. It has that the new rules have passed. So they reduced basically the net mirroring prices for uh, rooftop solar owners. And they call it net metering 3.0. And there's been a huge debate. So I, I, I collected public data on that. Nice, nice. So going back a little, let's talk a little more about the e- e-bike. So I'm a, I've never really, I just moved into downtown Austin uh, this past year, and I've never been an e-bike person before that. Are you finding any interesting things in this in your e-bike data? Also, are you an e-bike fan? What's your stance? Well, I live in the suburbs of California, so I can't. Okay. So maybe you're you know, an EV fan. I'm an EV fan. Yes, I'm more okay. than an EV fan, more than an e-bike fan. But I've I've been talking to people around me uh, who have or use bikes or e-bikes, and I I see people like are um, very much interested in, and they they love e-bikes. Uh, they see the value in them. From the data standpoint, people are still more using uh, conventional bikes as opposed to e-bikes. That's what I was going to say is I think e-bikes is still maybe just a new trend that's maybe not catching on as quickly as like electric vehicles are. Like I said, I just barely really got on the trend this past year. Yeah, it is. It is a relatively new, new trend. And I think there is some interest in in e-bikes, but it's just not catching on. It's very, very expensive. So that is the biggest drawback um, of of e-bikes. Looking at the data, there is there's a strong interest, and they, they see the advantage of of owning an e-bike. But the biggest drawback, the biggest disadvantage of them is their price range. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, I've looked at e-bike prices, and I've thought mm, maybe I just get an EV instead. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I mean, still not comparable pricing, but. But regardless of that, right before I took us down the e-bike trail, you mentioned utility response. So utility response is, you know, a service that Z Prime has been providing over the past year or two. What are some of the most surprising bits of data that you're finding with utility response? Can you share any of that with us? Sure. I won't say it's very surprising as much as it's a trend that is continuing to happen, which is that people are very much interested and continue to be interested in clean energy solutions. They are always interested in solar energy, for example, always interested in in, uh, home generation solutions. They are always interested in EVs and they continue to be um, interested in in sustainable solutions for transportation and for for energy generation. I find that as you know, Gen Z starts to come up, they have such an interest in those same clean energy solutions. Uh, just like with Gen Z, people who work here at Z Prime, it's part of, you know, the reason people are getting involved in the energy industry. So it's it's an exciting time for clean energy, I think, because it's well, and because it's the future. So it is for sure. Um, so what areas of clean energy do you see consumers having the most impact on, would you say? I probably would say increased adoption of electric vehicles. There's a huge gravitation towards that. You know, re- recently, I feel like with electric vehicles, there's an educational curve that comes along with that. Uh, there's a learning curve there that I think most consumers are not aware of or are so aware of it's prohibiting them from being electric vehicle consumers. So 
I think that's that's an exciting trend to see, right? Um, the more electric vehicles we have on the road, the better it is, you know, for decarbonizing the earth. And you're, you're in California where they have some pretty aggressive like EV um, standards that they're setting, right? That is true. Um, in California, California is one of the, the, the biggest states that encourage people to um, own EVs and there are EV charging stations everywhere. Now it's very accessible and it's very easy to own an EV in California and you see them everywhere now. I see, I would say also another, another area that consumers would have an impact on is also increased adoption of solar panels or solar energy. It's a very, very big thing now. And the data shows also that people are very interested in, in, in solar energy and they're big supporters of, of solar energy and accessibility of solar energy, meaning clean energy also for all segments of the society. You know, when I first moved into my home, you know, when you move into a new neighborhood, there's always the salespeople that's like, hey, do you want to buy this vacuum? Hey, let me show you my water softener or my alarm system. And I've started to see a lot more solar door to door people in these like newer developed neighborhoods. Are you, is that a thing in California? Is that maybe just a Texas thing? Uh, what's your experience with that? Oh, no, it's very also very much a California thing as well. Uh, like you said, door-to-door representatives or salespeople trying to promote solar energy to new homeowners. And yeah, I've had that experience uh, as well. Different solar energy businesses approaching us either in person or are contacting us or yeah. any, any form of advertisement promoting, right. promoting solar panels, especially with... Like, yeah, like you know, as you know, I just moved into a new uh, house recently and it was happening at the time where the transition is, was happening uh, to uh, net metering 3.0. So mm-hmm. the marketing was aggressive. Oh. And, and one of the strategies that they were using is that you can get be grandfathered in uh, the net metering 2.0. So that means you get advantage to the old pricing of net metering and, and you know, not be affected by the new laws. Right. While well, you get upgraded to a different system. That's, yeah, that's cool. You know who needs that level of marketing is the e-bikes. That's, right? that's, that's, <laughs> that's who needs true. that. <laughs> uh, well, my last question for you, Hiba, is as we're looking, you know, at 2023 as a whole, like if we want to look a little bit beyond that to 2024, 2025, what technologies do you think will see the highest amount of consumer adoption over the next few years? Is it EVs or is it going to be solar? Is there a new technology coming along? Who's like the bright light over the next couple of years? I'd still say EVs. EVs is a very big, big industry and it's growing and soaring very fast. The data shows it. And the industry as a whole, like the, the new technologies in batteries, the utilization of EVs, not just for clean transportation, but also a clean way to, to power your house. So there's no a new trend of, or, or they're trying to create these uh, vehicles that are, um, I think they're called bi-directional uh, EV cars. So you charge them, and they hold a massive amount of energy, but they're, they're not, most of the time they're not used because people, most people commute from, from their home to, the, to their office and from their office back to their work or all these big fleets that are you know, used in schools or public offices. So there's a shift in the mindset of using EVs, not just as a, a, a way for clean transportation, but also using them to generate power to power your house you know as a, as a clean energy source yeah we we saw that here in texas um when when we um had our winter freeze and we actually just had another one here in austin this past like two weeks ago i talked about it with joyce earlier so it's wild you know and when we do think about the next few years one thing that is going to be coming through is like EV fleets for for like school buses and transportation. I literally watched this YouTube yesterday about hot Cheetos and hot Cheetos now are being 
distributed out of California, but they're in Tesla semis. So it's like all of these EV Tesla semi hot Cheeto trucks that are now, um, that people are now going to see throughout the U.S. So uh, you're in California. So be on the lookout for the hot Cheeto trucks. <laughs> I will. I will. <laughs> Well, Hiba, it was so it was great talking to you today. You were my last stop on this research um, roundabout, is what I should call it. You know, I, I've chatted with Jason and Aaron and Joyce and Dylan, and I've really enjoyed our conversation, rounding out our series today. So, thank you for joining me, and as always, thank you for for being on the grid. Until next time, it was great chatting with you. Bye. Thank you. Great chatting to you. The future of energy is bright, but it requires people, partnerships, and us galvanizing together as a collective force to enact change. In fact, we're having our 10th anniversary of the Energy Thought Summit on April 3rd, 2023 in Austin, Texas at the Hotel Zaza. You know, it's always been said that ETS is where the energy revolution meets every year. And honestly, we'd love to have you there. For more information, please visit www.energythoughtsummit.com. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit subscribe and give us a rating. We'd love to hear from you. If you're interested in joining us on the grid, email us at info at zprime.com. For updates, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn at zprime and on Twitter at zprime underscore research. This episode was produced by Ricky Murray and edited by Ariel Levanti. On the Grid is managed by Faith Bro, and cover art is designed by Ari Levanti.